Over the course of this last week and these next couple weeks, um, we are looking at different ways that we experience the grace of God and different ways that God's Word shapes and forms us. Last week, we looked at how worship shapes and forms us. This week, particularly, we're looking at how preaching does so, and uh, the reason for doing so will become apparent in a minute. After Labor Day, we'll begin our series where we'll be working through a book of the Bible um, beginning on September 9th. Let me pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, you have given us your word that it would reveal to us your plan of salvation, not just for us alone, but for all mankind, and not just for all mankind, but for the redemption of all creation. So Lord, we pray that you would use the preaching of your word that we would understand more fully what Christ has done, and that we would seek it and desire it and long for it and not settle for anything else. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you what might seem to be a little bit of a funny question. How do you preach a sermon when you have nothing to say? How do you preach a sermon when you have absolutely no authority to get up and say anything. Over the course of the 20th century, there has been a theological movement that has uh, taken over almost all, um, certainly all mainline churches in the United States and around the world. This would include your mainline Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Baptists, Episcopalians, and several others that you could throw, that you could throw into the mix. And this theological movement held to a very uh, particular set of convictions. Those convictions included um, the, the belief that anything that is supernaturally recorded in Scripture was written after the fact and was added in and didn't actually occur. They hold to the position that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is irrelevant to the practice and belief of Christianity. It is um, not necessary for you to be a Christian and not necessary for you to believe that. They also hold as a core tenet that what is taught in Scripture, that what is recorded here in Scripture, is that they would agree that, yes, Scripture is inspired, but the way that Scripture is inspired is no different than the way that you would be inspired. So if you sat down and wrote your religious, re- religious reflections and your religious observations, and you presented those, your religious reflections and observations would be just as inspired as anything that is recorded in this book right here. In the midst of that theological movement, there was a book that was written for preachers on how to preach. And the name of the book was entitled, As One Without Authority, which was, how do you preach a sermon when you've got nothing to say and you have absolutely no authority to say anything? And this book arguably is one of the most influential books uh, in Christianity in, in America in the 20th century. And the basis in what this book writes and teaches is that if you have nothing to say and you have no authority to say it, then what happens when you're developing a sermon, which you really need to focus on, is how you engage people, how you communicate people, how you engage people, and how you hold and captivate their attention. Personally, as a student of communication, it's really fascinating. They've got some keen insights of how do you get people's attention when you've got nothing to say to them. Um, and how do you hold their attention, and how do you get them to come to your church when you have nothing to offer them? And, and, they, and they don't hide that fact. This is very apparent. This is very forthright communication. 
And with this book, um, it's been one of the most influential books in the 20th century, particularly for preachers. And as I have studied this in my coursework, what's also been particularly eye-opening to me is not just that people would actually read this and still feel called to go into ministry, but how much the teaching of this book and similar ones like it have infiltrated the American church globally and also the church worldwide. And how much, what is, how so often what is viewed as good preaching is actually articulated according to this book on how do you preach when you have nothing to say. When it comes to this issue, even more so, not just what do you do to preach, but what does it mean to preach Christ, most Christians and most pastors do not know what it means to preach Christ or to preach a Christ-centered message. And that's not an exaggeration. When we were in Costa Rica this summer, we visited uh, quite a number of different churches, listened to quite a number of different sermons. And it is true that the only Christ-centered sermons that I heard while we were gone was listening to the podcast of Cornerstone. Those were the only ones. And there's several reasons for this. One of the biggest reasons is preachers, quite simply, don't know how to preach Christ-centered sermons. And that's in large part because they weren't taught how to preach Christ-centered sermons. It is objectively true that there are very few seminaries, very few Bible-believing evangelical seminaries, very few seminaries, period, who teach how to preach Christ-centered messages. And in fact, there are several prominent evangelical seminaries that would actually teach against doing so. And some of them would actually give a point-by-point rebuttal for almost everything that I'm going to share with you here this morning. So one of the reasons why preachers don't preach Christ-centered messages is that they don't know how to and they aren't taught. Another reason is, quite simply, it's really easy to do it. It's really easy to preach a Christless message. I know this because I've done it before and been convicted of that and not even realized that I have done it. Indeed, my advisor, who wrote a book, part of the reason why I'm connected with him, is that this is his own experience. He says, I find when I talk about making exposition, that is, how do you explain Scripture, explicitly Christ-centered, everyone thinks that I'm talking about someone else. This is him talking to groups of pastors. He says, everybody thinks I'm talking about someone else. They never dream that they could possibly be preparing Christless messages. Even the best of preachers can fall victim to having a weak or absent Christ focus. Now, notice what he says here. My concern is not that the Bible is absent in weekly sermons. We'll go into that in a minute. My concern is that the seeming great lack of gospel clarity in weekly preaching and teaching. I am troubled by the lack of gospel saturation in weekly messages, even by many who say they believe the gospel. And so what he's identifying is that not only is there a lack of this, but there's a lack among many preachers and... Another major reason why this is present, why there's a lack of Christ-centered preaching, is because most congregations don't know what it is, and they're not pushing for it, they're not seeking it, and they're not asking for it. And I would say, I was guilty of that myself. I had no idea what it was. In fact, when I was in seminary, one of our exercises in one of our preaching classes was we had to listen to a sermon And the assignment was we had to identify what was wrong with this message. Now, you have to understand something about seminary students. Seminary students love theology. They love being right, and they love telling other people that they're wrong. So, when you get an assignment to say what's wrong with this message, this is like 
throwing blood in the water to a school of sharks. I mean, this is like chumming, getting, getting ready for things to just erupt. People love this stuff, okay, in seminary. And so the assignment is, listen to the sermon and figure out what's wrong with it. We get back, and the bottom line was, nobody knew what was wrong with it, myself included. Is that you listened to this message, and you said, wow, I mean, this guy's, his, his exposition from Scripture, his explanation of Scripture is clear, it's accurate, his message is related to the text, it follows the text, and um, it, follows what the, it, it follows the passage. You can see that his points are directly related to it. He has very good insight into the human condition and how his points relate to the human condition. None of us got it. After several minutes of working through this, the professor then says, let me, let me give you some, let me see if this helps you. Does it make a difference to you that this preacher is Mormon? Which is not Christian, for those of you that don't know that. Does it make a difference to you that, this, that the preacher is Mormon? So consider this. You had a group of seminary students who are called to, to ministry. They, they love Jesus. They, they love preaching. They want to grow in this. They are given a piece of shark bait, and none of them get it. And the reason why this was not a good message and what was wrong with it is it wasn't Christ-centered. So my desire this morning, as we look at this here, and also the, some of the things that I realized this summer, is that you as a congregation need to be equipped to know what is Christ-centered preaching, what's not Christ-centered preaching. Most of you will move from here at some point or another. Most of you will visit other churches and you will evaluate preaching. And usually the number one thing that people evaluate preaching on, the first thing they ask is, did I enjoy it? Did you enjoy that? How was it? Did you enjoy that? That's question number one. Question number two, oh, we had this, it's a great church. I really enjoy that guy's preaching. First evaluation point. Second evaluation point is, did it relate to me? Did I get anything out of it? Now, conserv- now com- people who are committed Christians... And it's almost always the third point, which will be, was it biblical? Which means, did the message somehow relate to a passage of Scripture? And if you come from more of a reform background, that usually means, was it expositional? Was it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, working through the text? And if you come from more of a fundamentalist background, it means, did the sermon end with an altar call, regardless of what the passage was about? Now, having said that, what I want to share with you this morning is that when we talk about Christ-centered preaching... There are four things specifically that relate to what it means to be Christ-centered preaching. And that's what we're going to go through this morning. So Christ, and these are the things that you need to listen for. I'm going to give you a key question with each one for how you should evaluate messages and also what you should be seeking and what you should be asking from churches and what you should be asking for when you listen to sermons. And they are this. Christ-centered preaching is biblical, it is missional, It is motivational, and finally, it is worshipful. Biblical, missional, motivational, and worshipful. If you're not a note-taker, this is a great Sunday to start because you should be using these questions. Biblical, missional, motivational, and worshipful. First thing, Christ-centered preaching is biblical. Well, we say, of course it's biblical. Of course it needs to be biblical. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard someone use the Bible in a way that is not biblical? Have you ever heard someone use a Bible verse in a way that is directly contrary to Scripture? Of course you have. Listen to any politician. They take the verse that fits their agenda, and they distort it to mean whatever they want it to mean. 
right? Listen to opponents of Christianity. You Christians don't believe the Bible. I know you don't believe the Bible because you don't sacrifice animals in your church on Sunday morning, and the Bible commands you to do that, right? Everybody uses it. So to not use a Bible passage, so what that means is how people do it is they either take the passage out of context and distort its meaning, or they take the passage out of the story of Scripture. Another place where I'm sure that you've heard people use the Bible unbiblically is if you've ever been around Christians who are arguing, and they start throwing Bible verses at each other. When Christians start when people start throwing Bible verses and using Bible verses to argue their position, I guarantee to you that the Bible is being used in an unbiblical way. And so it's not simply a matter of, does this sermon have a lot of Bible verses in it? Does this sermon, does it relate to, is the, is the point that he's making, is it derived from the passage? As I mentioned, there's some really good Mormon preachers who do that and do not preach Christ-centered messages. So to say that the preaching is biblical means this. It means that to, to preach biblically, to cre- for Christ-centered preaching, it means to authentically integrate the message of the text, whichever sermon text it is, to authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To authentically integrate the message of the text with the climax of God's revelation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To be clear, what that means is it doesn't mean that you're trying that the preacher's finding some novel way to name Jesus in every sermon. Rather, it shows, Christ-centered preaching shows, how each text manifests God's grace in order to prepare and enable God's people to embrace the hope that's provided by Christ. Now, why is this so important? Why, do, why should a sermon be Christ-centered? Why should you as church members ask and demand and require Christ-centered preaching? Because the Bible is about Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, shortly after the resurrection, there are two of Jesus' disciples who are walking on a road to a village named Emmaus. They don't understand what's happened. Jesus has died on the cross. Some of his followers say that the tomb is empty. Boom, Jesus shows up among them. If I could pick any sermon in the Bible to hear, it would probably be this one. Jesus shows up with them. He says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. They didn't know what was happening. Jesus starts listening to their conversation. They say, well, and they said, the disciples say, do you not know what's happened? And he said, well, what's happened? They say about Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he was a prophet and he was... Um, you know, when he was delivered up to the Pharisees and leaders and he was crucified and his followers say that he is, that the tomb is empty. And some even say that they have seen him and that he's risen from the dead. And they're confused about this. And so Jesus shows up among them and after listening to them, this is what Jesus says to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What's his rebuke? He says, you disciples... You're foolish. You're not believing what the scriptures, namely the Old Testament, has taught. Why don't you understand this, he says to the disciples. Then he goes on to say, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, what's Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, 
He interpreted to them in all the scriptures. What is all the scriptures? The New Testament hasn't been written yet. This is the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What is Jesus saying about the Old Testament? He's saying everything about the Bible is about me. It finds its fulfillment. It finds its climax in me. The Old Testament is predictive. It foresees. It anticipates. It prepares for me who I am and what I have done. After explaining this, the disciples said to, him, said to each other later, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It says, Did not our, wasn't there some movement of God's spirit when he explained how the whole Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ? So Jesus says, why should you preach Christ-centered messages? Why should you push for that? Because Jesus says the whole Bible is about him. You say, well, wait a second. Well, the New Testament is about Jesus, not the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament is where, you know, the plan of salvation and salvation in Christ is laid out. You might push back. That's not what the Apostle Paul says. Here's what Paul says. There's a famous verse about Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every, equipped for every good work. Now, the verse before this is what we need to pay attention to. For in the verse before this, Paul is instructing Timothy, his protege. The New Testament is in the process of being written. Timothy grew up during the events of the life of Jesus. And Paul says to Timothy this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and what you firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What are the sacred writings? The Old Testament. How from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. What happens when you study the Old Testament? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. See what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, you need to study the Old Testament so that you can be wise for salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is... Everything in Scripture, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. Now, I know some of you are still aren't convinced. Let me share with you something else. This is Tim Keller eloquently puts it this way. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, we can say, now we know that you love us because you, Heavenly Father, did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph 
who at the right hand of God forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly, the, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. Jesus is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. All of this to say is that the Bible is not really about you. It's about him. So what does that mean for preaching? It means this is that if the preacher is to preach what's in the Bible, and the Bible is about Jesus, what should a sermon be about? Jesus. If Jesus is the hero of the Bible, who should be the hero of every sermon? Jesus. When you leave church, who should you be thinking about? Yourself and your failures and the way that you didn't measure up? Or should you be thinking about the one who did everything on your behalf and gives you new life and new life abundant in him? Jesus. So here is the question. Why does, should we have Christ-centered preaching? Because the Bible is about Jesus. And the key question that you need to be asking is this. Was the text authentically integrated with the person and work of Jesus Christ? Did it drive to the climax of Revelation and the person and work of Jesus Christ? Second aspect of Christ-centered preaching, and I'm going to go through this one quickly, is that Christ-centered preaching is missional. What that means is that Christ-centered preaching preaches the whole gospel to the whole person. Sometimes there is this debate that goes on and it says, who is worship for, believers or unbelievers? And I say, well, who is, a, who is a sermon for? Is a sermon for believers or is it for unbelievers? It's a false question. Because, let me ask you, is a sermon for believers or unbelievers? Well, who has unbelief in their life? Believers or unbelievers? Both, right? Both do. And for believers, when there's areas of unbelief in their life, what do they need to do? They need to repent of their unbelief. They need to understand the gospel, the person and work of Christ. They need to repent of their unbelief and trust in Christ, right? Okay. Who has belief in their life? Believers or unbelievers? Both. Why? Because unbelievers 
are created in the image of God. They live in God's world. All truth is God's truth. If there's anything true in their life they believe, it is rooted in God. And what needs to happen in a message is that where there is unbelief, it needs to be challenged and repented of. And where there is belief in both believers and in unbelievers, it needs to be cultivated It needs to be cultivated, affirmed, and connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Both of them. So, if that's the case, you think about this and say if it's for both believers and unbelievers, what did Christ come to do? Or a different way to put it is to say, what is the gospel? The most common answer would probably be, the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners. You know, so what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came, Jesus came to save people. And that would be true, but it would probably be one of the most narrow answers that you can give, and also disregards most of the Bible. Why? Because that's not what Jesus said he came to do. Because in Jesus' words, and you see this in Jesus, you see this in all the apostles, is what did Jesus come to do? He came to do this. He came to proclaim the gospel, not of individualistic salvation, but to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He came not just simply to say, here's how you as an individual can can be saved. He came in to say that there is a kingdom. There is Lord Almighty. I am the king who is coming. And there is redemption for this world. And the redemption that I have brings, yes, extends to individual people. But beyond that, it extends to relations and to systems and to governments and actually to the entire created order. There is a king and there is a kingdom. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. So Christ-centered preaching preaches the whole gospel to whole people. So, yes, that means that there needs to be a message of salvation proclaimed, as Romans 10 makes clear. It also means that the function of the proclamation of the God's word in preaching is to build people up. As Paul says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What does God's word do in the life of Christians? It builds them up so that they would get an inheritance among those who are sanctified. It builds them up, it sanctifies them, it conforms them to Christ. And, but is that the full scope of what Christ has done? No. Because, as we sing in the song Joy to the World, we sing, He comes to make His blessings known. How far? As far as the curse is found. How far does the curse of sin go? It goes through the entire created order throughout the entire cosmos. So Paul writes in creation and Colossians that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself every individual person. Is that what it says? Reconcile to himself all things. All things in heaven or on earth. How? Making peace by the blood of his cross. That the reconciliation and redemption that Christ brings is much more than an individual salvation. It is not less than that, but it is much more than that. And so Christ-centered preaching explains and applies the mission of Jesus Christ. That yes... God is drawing to himself a people, a people of every tongue, tribe, race, and nation, where they can be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. And not only that, but through the work of Christ, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay, as Romans 8 says. And it will receive a glorious inheritance. And that the entire cosmos is going to be renewed in a new heavens and new earth. And the reason why it is so important for that to be preached and proclaimed is, one, it's true. Number two, is what's, it's what saves Christians from a self-centered Christianity. 
is that Christians need to understand the story of Scripture and realize that God's work in this world is much more than the claustrophobic confines of an individual person's life. He has a cosmic scope to draw a cosmic redemption. So here's the key question. Does the sermon proclaim and apply the work of Christ beyond individual salvation? Is the work of Christ bigger than what's happening with just me and Jesus? Third area, and this is where most sermons go wrong, is that Christ-centered preaching is rightly is motivational. And I want you to investigate this next passage with me and think through what's being proclaimed here. In Galatians, Paul writes the letter of Galatians to the church in Galatia. And what was happening there is that there, were a bu- there was a church that had started, people who were living for Jesus, people who were telling other people about how they could have life in Jesus. In came another group of Christians who were telling people about Jesus and how they could have life in Jesus. And they also said, and oh, by the way, there's certain things that you have to do. There's certain religious customs, certain Jewish customs that you have to, have to practice. And Paul comes in very harshly and confronts them. He rebukes the people that are teaching them, and he clarifies the way that the Spirit works in our lives. He clarifies how it is that we grow in the Christian faith and how the gospel gets worked out in our lives. This is what Paul says to them. He confronts them. He says, you foolish Galatians, it was bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. How did that occur? Because Paul proclaimed it to them and made it really clear. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? The crux of Paul's issue with these Christians is this. How are you attaining completion? How are you being perfected? How are you trying to have the full blessings of God's truth, the full blessings of Scripture, all of God? How are you trying to get those manifested in your life? And his question is this. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Are you that foolish, he asked them. And so he asked a series of questions. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? saying, how did you become a Christian? How did the Spirit begin to dwell in your life? Was it because you were a really good person and God said, you know what, that one, I need that one on my team? Say, no, it's not by works of the law. It's not because I earned my salvation. The only way that I have salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, namely by hearing with faith. You hear the promises of God and you believe them and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. So Paul's question is this, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you right now trying to attain completion, trying to attain perfection, trying to attain a wholeness? Are you trying to attain a wholeness now by works of the flesh? What is, and then he goes on to say this, let me ask you, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, meaning does God work in your midst right now, Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Does God continue to work in your life, and does he work in your community because you've been a really, really good Christian? And now that you've been a really, really good Christian, God's going to give you your token and say, good job, I'll answer that prayer because you've been good enough to get that prayer, but not this one over here. Maybe if you try a little bit harder, you'll get the one over here. He says, no, are you so foolish? He says, does God work in your midst right now because of your works, because of the way that you live your life, or because you hear the promises of God and you believe them. Hearing with promises, right? Hearing with faith. What Paul's identifying is that the way that you began in the Christian life by belief in the gospel is the same way that you grow in the Christian life, by a deeper belief in the gospel. And the biggest issue in your life is that there are more areas of your life that you have not yet submitted to the Lordship of Christ. So what happens is that, like in the church in Galatia, So many Christians and so many preachers turn sermons derived from Scripture into works of the law and not belief, not hearing by faith. How does that occur? It's like this. Haddon Robinson, he is a giant for those that have gone to seminary. You probably don't know his name. Haddon Robinson, who is one of the most prolific teacher of preachers, gave this observation. He said, more heresy is preached in application than in Bible exegesis. He says, where does heresy occur in sermons? It's not when people are explaining their passages of Scripture. They can do that pretty well, and there's lots of commentary that tell them what that means. It doesn't occur there. Where heresy is preached in how and why that text is applied. That is where heresy enters in. Brian Chappell, another master teacher of preachers, puts it this way. He says, how preachers motivate others to be holy is often the telltale sign of Christ-centered preaching. What makes a sermon Christ-centered? This, how they motivate for holiness. Consistently preaching both the necessity and the proper motivation for holiness is one of the most difficult tasks that preachers face in every generation. His own observation on preaching is this. Too many applications are simply human-centered exhortations to do do better in the power of the flesh, even if I can prove to you that the thing that you need to do better in comes from these pages. So he continues and says this, Be sure, to preachers, make sure that you motivate believers primarily by grace and not by guilt or greed. How do you motivate by guilt? You go like this. You say, Do you realize how much God loves you? I mean, do you understand exactly what Christ has done and the great debt that he has paid for you? And he has paid such a great debt for you, and this is the way that you repay him? I mean, didn't you realize that Jesus had to get nailed for every one of your sins? Do you want to make Jesus cry again? Or you motivate by, by guilt by saying, um, you know, I mean, come on now. Like, if you love God, you're going to do this. I mean, if you really, if you really love God, you, you would do this. I mean, you really want to love God, don't you? I mean, you're someone who really, I mean, you don't love God enough, but you really want to love God enough, and if you really love God enough, this is what you would do. That's motivation by guilt. It's completely wrong. Other reason is to motivate by greed. The way that you motivate by greed is you say, well, you want the fullness of God's blessings in your life, don't you? Well, you're not going to get those blessings unless you live the way that God wants you to live. Like, how can you expect God to bless you when you refuse to do what God calls you to do? Now, that one's deceptive because there's an element of truth that's distorted in that statement. 
but that's motivated by greed. Another way to motivate by greed or pride is to say this. Now, come on now. Let's be real. We're not the type of people that do those things. I mean, we're the people who really love Jesus. And as the people who really love Jesus, this is what we need to do. Oh, yo, look at me. I'm the type of person that really does this. All of those are wrong. It says, make sure you motivate believers predominantly by grace and not by guilt or greed. If God has freed people from the guilt and power of sin, then preachers have no right to put believers back under the weight that Jesus just bore. He goes on, in fact, many preachers fear that without the burden of guilt, God's going to get you if you don't, or the leverage of greed, God will give you more if you do, they will have no means to motivate obedience. It is not infrequent that people come to Cornerstone and they'll say sometime after being here for a while, they say, you preach too much grace. You're not going to be able to get, some pe- unless, you're not going to be able to get people to do things unless you give them a heavy dose of the law. That's a complete distortion of the law and a distortion of grace. But it's the same fear. Because people fear that without the burden of guilt or the leverage of greed, that you have no means to motivate obedience. The alternative to motivating by guilt is its antidote, which is grace. Believers need to serve God preeminently out of loving thankfulness for the redemption that he freely and fully provides. Another preacher teacher states it this way. He says, listen, if you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to the members of a Jewish synagogue or to a Unitarian congregation, there's something radically wrong with your sermon. We would say, of course, right? How do you preach a sermon that would be acceptable to a Jewish or Unitarian congregation? Even if you're talking about Jesus, is you set Jesus up as a moral example for everyone to follow. Everybody loves Jesus as a moral example. Who doesn't want to love like Jesus? Set up Jesus as a moral example. What is offensive is that Jesus is king and that he is Lord and that you need redemption. So an example of this here at Cornerstone was in the spring I did a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And the question that I kept asking the fruit of the Spirit, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, very similar to what the Marine Corps espouses, very similar to what Aristotle espouses and other religions espouse, the question that we wrestled through this spring is how does the gospel bear fruit in your life, right? That was the question that we wrestled through. Why? Because you can talk about love and humility and faithfulness and gentleness and kindness. You can talk about how Jesus shows us this, how Scripture calls us to do that, completely acceptable to a Unitarian congregation and completely Christless at the same time. So, he continues, preaching when truly Christian is distinctive and what makes it distinctive is the all-pervading presence of a saving and sanctifying Christ. Jesus Christ must be at the heart of every sermon you preach. How do you know? You must not exhort your congregation to do whatever the Bible requires of them as though they could fulfill those requirements on their own but only as a consequence of the saving power of the cross and the indwelling, sanctifying power and presence of Christ in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So Chapel encourages people to, preachers, to ask this question, and it's a question that I regularly ask myself in preparing sermons. It is this. When my listeners walk out of the doors of this sanctuary to perform God's will, with whom do they walk? With whom do they walk? If they march to battle the world, the flesh, and the devil with only me, myself, and I, then each of them parades to despair. However, 
If the sermon has led all persons to God's grace, then they may walk into the world with their Savior and with fresh hope. Whether people depart alone or in the Savior's hand, and this is the issue of Christ-centered preaching and why preaching grace is a more powerful motivator than preaching by guilt or greed or preaching legalism. When people, whether people depart alone or in the Savior's hand, will mark the difference between futility and faith, legalism and true obedience, do-goodism and real godliness. So here's the key question that you need to ask. Not just simply, what does this text require me? But why do I do what God requires? Why do I do it? If the answer to that question is not Jesus, it's incomplete. How do I do what God requires? Okay, I'm supposed to do this. How do I do this? Well, you can't do it in your own strength. You need to do it in the strength of God. What does that mean, right? I mean, really, what does that mean? Okay, but nonetheless, how do I do what God requires? If the answer to that one does not somehow tie into the Holy Spirit, it is incomplete. And these two, these two questions are the most critical questions of Christ-centered preaching. And indeed, those that are learning Christ-centered preaching and working on it probably would say that those two questions, that in preparing a sermon, they probably spend over half their time wrestling through those two questions. And quite frankly, most preachers don't even ask them. Third thing, and that's not... That's not I mean, that's just objectively the case. They just flat out don't ask the question. Christ-centered preaching is biblical, missional, motivational, and briefly, Christ-centered preaching is worshipful. Do you ever notice in Paul's writing how he gives an instruction like, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself? And then he periodically like bursts into these like songs of praise. You're like, I'm tracking the sentence and it ends and it's like talking about Jesus and how great he is. And then the sentence picks up like two chapters later. It's kind of confusing when you're reading it. Here's in Philippians 2 is an example. And he talks about how great he is and how God needs to be exalted. Why does this happen? I believe the reason why it happens is because for each one of us, including Paul, we worship Whatever is our master and our Lord. Whatever has the lordship of your heart, you freely and earnestly worship and give praise. And so the question that Christ-centered preachers wrestle through, and biblical counselors, as David Pallison states, the question that preachers wrestle through on our side is this. Has something or someone besides Jesus taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight. Who or what rules your behavior? The Lord or a substitute? And what Christ-centered preaching does is that Christ-centered preaching exalts Jesus. It exalts Jesus as the Lord, and it says, Christ-centered preaching says, look at how great Jesus Christ is. Look at his work. Look what Christ has done. Look at how it is so much bigger and more and all-encompassing. Look, look at how it is so much more glorious than you thought. Don't you see that all of your problems stem from failing to see this and failing to believe this? Don't you see now how much more glorious God is and what Christ has done and who you are in Christ? It draws you into the worship of God and leaves you in the presence of God. It draws you there because what our hearts most need is to profess his lordship, his greatness, and to profess that he is our greatest love, our greatest desire, our greatest delight, and our greatest need. So the question is simply this. 
to evaluate this one. When the sermon is done, do you want to worship? Not did you enjoy it, but when the sermon is done, do you want to worship? And you can tie all of these together and put it this way. Preaching Christ is to preach a text of Scripture which exposes our motives, exposes our hearts, and exposes our world in such a way that the authentic gospel is the only possible answer. What this means for you as the members of a church and when you move from here and you're visiting other churches, it means that you need to seek Christ-centered preaching and to ask for Christ-centered preaching and to not settle for a gospel of self-effort. Because the Word of God proclaims to us what we most need, and that is Jesus Christ and more of Him in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, you have given us your Word that we would know Christ. Father, we confess that for many of us, we have turned your Word to somehow think that your Word is not all about you, but all about us. So we open the word and say, well, what does, this, what does this mean for me? What is this about me? What is this about me? When realizing that the thing that we most need is not for us to be the center of our universe, but for you to be the center of our universe. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to know your word, that we would see the fullness of what Christ has done. And Lord, that you would work through the preaching of this church to draw this congregation and this community to Christ. And Lord, through other churches in our community and across our nation and across our globe, that you would raise up preachers who preach Christ because you are what we need more than anything else. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.